excited about this conference. I've been looking forward to it for a long time, and I'm expecting God to speak to each one of us and to impact each of our lives. And the speakers, the other speakers, man, I'm just like the opening act, okay? I'm like the, the band, that, the local band that comes and plays. Um, but honestly, I feel like as I've been praying, as I've been thinking about what to share with you guys, I felt like God has laid some really cool things on my heart that almost every single one of them has come from my quiet times in the past month. And so my title of my message is A Life That God Blesses. A life that God blesses. So who in here wants God to bless their life? Okay. I'm going to tell you how. A few things tonight. And I can say that confidently, not based on my own experience or what I say, but based on God's word. And I'm going to show you that. But I want to pray one more time before I jump in. God, thank you so much for your grace, for bringing me to this place where I can share these truths. Lord, and I do so... um, with fear and trembling, knowing that I still don't live up to these things, that these are the things you're calling me to. I pray that that would come through the humility and the brokenness and the desire to be the man that you're calling me to be. And so I pray that you would, you would call each of us forward in our own way tonight and op- prepare that use this as a way to, to plow the ground for what you want to do this, this week. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So God wants to pour out his blessing and his favor on your life. God has like a big old bucket of of blessing that he wants to pour out onto your life. And there's three things. There's actually several other things. There's a great book. It's called Attitudes for Success. It really defines a life that God blesses. It's by Randy Lanthrop. So I, I encourage you to check that out. But the first thing I've noticed and I've thought about is God blesses passionate prayer. God blesses passionate prayer. And I was reading in, the, in my quiet time, and I was reading in 1 Samuel. And in the very first chapter of 1 Samuel, I came across this kind of obscure story about Hannah. Um, and shout out to Hannah, who just got engaged. Where are you at? Yeah. Okay. It's a good name, solid name. We'll see why in a second. Um, so I'm going to read. We're going to pick up. It should be on the screen for you. Hannah was in deep anguish crying bitterly as she prayed to the Lord. And she made this vow, O Lord of heaven's armies, if you will look upon my sorrow and answer my prayer and give me a son, then I will give him back to you. See, Hannah was asking God for for years to have a son. She was praying, she was weeping, she was fasting. She was doing everything she could to have a son. And then finally she got to this place of, of passion, of brokenness, of desperation, and this is where we pick up. It says, he will all, he, she's praying. She, she says, he will be yours for his entire lifetime. And as a, sign, as a sign that he has been dedicated to the Lord, his hair will never be cut. As she was praying to the Lord, Eli was watching her, watched her. Seeing her lips moving, but hearing no sound, he thought she was drinking. <laughs> Must you come here drunk, he demanded. Throw away your wine. Oh, no, sir, she replied. I haven't been drinking wine or anything stronger, (laughs) but I'm very discouraged, and I was pouring my heart out to the Lord. Don't think I'm a wicked woman, for I've been praying out of great anguish and sorrow. In that case, Eli said, go in peace. May the God of Israel grant the request you have asked of him. Oh, thank you, sir, she exclaimed. Then she went back and began to eat again, and she was no longer sad. 1 Samuel 1, 10 through 18. I encourage you to look it up. And read that in context sometime. But do you understand what's happening here? Hannah is praying so fervently, so passionately, that the priest is looking at her and is like, you're drunk. <laughs> like something's crazy about this person. And I pray that God gives us, many of us, a passion to see him work like that. To see that we have such a zeal, such a passion for prayer, that people look at us a little funny. Like, that's a little weird how much this guy prays. It's a little bit different. Hannah wept. Hannah fasted. Hannah prayed for physical children. But God has called us, I believe, to weep and to fast and to pray for spiritual children, people that that will be born again into God's family, that God will use us to help see lives changed. 
George Whitfield, he prayed, oh God, give me souls or I die. This is a prayer that George Whitfield prayed. And I pray that each of us, by the end of this week, you're gonna hear a lot about God's heart for the nations. You're gonna hear stuff from Steve Shadrach about evangelism. I pray that God will give each one of us a similar burden. God, give me souls or I die. God, use my life for something bigger than myself. Use me for something that's on the very heart of God is to redeem those that are lost. And as I was studying my favorite passage um, that kind of we based one of my favorite passages, it's Matthew 9, 36 to 38, which is basically challenges ministry strategy. So if you want to look at challenge behind the scenes, this is it. Matthew 9, 36 to 38. It says, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he says to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his field. The start of this passage grips me every time because when Jesus sees the crowds, he has compassion on him. When Jesus sees Chico State, when Jesus sees Butte College, and he sees the thousands and thousands of students that don't know Christ, I believe he has compassion on them. And the Greek, in, in, the Greek for compassion is, I'm not even going to try to say this word. It's on the screen. But, but it literally means to be moved as to one's bowels. And the bowels were thought to be the seat of love and pity. So when Jesus saw the people wandering away from Christ, it literally gave him a pit in his stomach. It made him sick to his stomach. When he sees the crowds the thousands of students at Chico State that rush in between classes. I think Jesus still looks at our campus and he weeps. He has a pit in his stomach. He, it makes, his, makes him sick. Because they're what they, it says they're like sheep without a shepherd. And it, if you go to Chico Community Church, we're doing this series. It's an awesome series. It's, I'm, I'm wearing the shirt, Psalm 23, whatever it takes. And it's about the good shepherd, how God is a good shepherd. People without Christ don't have him, don't have the good shepherd in their life. They don't have, Psalm 23 is not true of those that are apart from Christ. And then I think about the 280 campuses in California. I think about how God has called us. I pray every day that God would use our ministry and other ministries to help plan a challenge on every single campus in California. There's 280 campuses in California, and there's less than 10 Christian Challenge Ministries. So we have a lot of work to do. When you think about most campuses, there's hardly anything like this going on you know, across California. And I, I believe that breaks the heart of God. And I pray that it would break your heart, too. That's my prayer. I pray that it wouldn't be something that, because you see me getting passionate about it, I pray that God would really give you a burden for those without Christ. I pray that God... It's a good burden. It's something you want because you get closer to God. When, when your heart is lined up with God's heart, even when it hurts, there's like something joyful about it. Actually, it says that in Paul, he describes himself. He says, we're sorrowful yet always rejoicing. We're sorrowful yet always. So there's a joy and a brokenness that comes. Bob Pierce, he said, let my heart be broken by the things that break the heart of God. That's a dangerous prayer. I challenge you to pray it. God, break my heart for what breaks your heart. Because eternity is forever. It's impossible to, for me to exaggerate the urgency of eternity. It's impossible for me to talk about how important, over-exaggerate how important our mission on this campus is. And this is another prayer you can pray. It's, oh Lord, stamp eternity on my eyeballs. Jonathan Edwards, he said this. So when you see the world you don't see it for just this temporary life. You see it for all of eternity. And then, the, anyone read, read Romans in here? Anyone read Romans? Okay, good. It's a good book. I recommend it. It's probably the best book about the gospel. It's probably the best book in the Bible that gives you an in-depth theological look at the gospel. And in Romans 8... Paul goes off. He goes off on a rant, and he talks about how what can separate us from the love of Christ? 
Can angels, can demons, can anything separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus? He's just saying nothing can separate. And it's the height of celebration in Romans 8. And then in Romans 9, Romans 9, it, he, it goes straight into lament. It goes straight from praise and worship and just he's the most joyful to lament. It says, he says this, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Romans 9, 1 through 3. Apostle Paul had great sorrow and unceasing anguish in his heart. I think the more you understand the gospel, the deeper you understand the gospel, the most naturally, the, the deeper your compassion for the lost should be. The deeper you understand the gospel, the deeper your compassion for the lost should be. Because if you understand how great what Jesus has done for you, you can't help that love of Christ, it overflows onto others. You want others to understand this. And no one cares, this is a reminder, no one cares more about those without Christ than Christ himself. Because he paid the ultimate sacrifice. I love this picture. Luke 13, 34. Jesus, when he looks over the city of Jerusalem, he said, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Luke 13, 34. It talks about how Jesus just looks over the city and he wept over it. Have you ever wept for the lost? Have you ever wept for the world that doesn't know Christ? If Jesus is really the only way to God, if Jesus, if you really have this real relationship with God, then there's nothing more important than sharing that with the world. There's, what else do you have to do with your life? Back in Romans, uh, Matthew 9, we're going to look at some things. It says, the harvest is plentiful, but the labors are few. And so this has freed me up to remember that the problem is not with the harvest. Okay? You look at Chico State, the problem is not with the harvest. There's people right now at Chico State that would respond to the gospel. If we could just get into their lives, love them, pray for them, and share the gospel with them. You know what would happen? They would come to Christ right now. The harvest is plentiful. The problem is not with the harvest. What's the problem? According to Matthew 9, 36 to 38. The lack of laborers. And that's a tragedy when you think about it. It's a tragedy to think that there's this vast harvest field of people. And this is Jesus saying this. He's saying, look. Look at the fields, they're ripe for harvest. We need laborers to go to this field. And then what does he say? He says something amazing, because sometimes, honestly, this burden is overwhelming. When you look at the world, the needs of the lost in the world on our campus, you look at how many unreached people groups, there's over 6,000 unreached people groups, meaning the average person lives and dies and never hears the gospel. When you hear those truths and you look at the children dying of starvation. You look at all the, the tragedies around the world, the sex trafficking, all the things that are happening in the world. It can be easy as a Christian just to get bogged down and to get discouraged. And, and that is a good, you, you should have a burden for it. But this next phrase has actually freed me up. And that's where prayer comes in. Prayer can, can alleviate the burden, this burden. Because he says, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest. Pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest. And this is something God's been reminding me of, is it's, it's not my harvest, okay? Whose harvest is it? It's the Lord's harvest. Pray earnestly to the Lord. It's God's harvest. And so he wants to send people. He wants to send people out. He wants to bring people in. He wants to do it. And we, our job, our main job, is actually to pray earnestly. That's our main job. And so we need to be diligent in our prayer lives. We need to be earnest. It says pray earnestly. Has anyone ever accused you of an earnest prayer life? What does that even mean? But when I think about that, I think it means more than what I'm probably doing on a regular basis. 
A lot of times my prayer life is more casual. It's more laid back. It's more just as I go through life. But man, Jesus is calling for earnest prayer, for the urgent mission. Jesus is calling for earnest prayer for an urgent mission. And then at the end, so God answers Hannah's prayer. And Hannah has Samuel, which is an awesome prophet that does a lot. You can read his books. He's got a couple of them, First and Second Samuel. Um, and this is what she says. After God blesses Hannah with this amazing blessing of a son, she goes into this, like, bursting out song of praise. She just, like, belts it out. And let's pick it up in 1 Samuel 2, 69. It says, The Lord brings death and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and raises up. The Lord sends poverty and wealth. He humbles and he exalts. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. He sets them with the princes and has them inherit a throne of honor. For the foundations of the Lord are the, of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful servants, but the wicked will be silenced in, a, in the place of darkness. 1 Samuel 2, 6-9. Man, when I was reading that in my quiet time the other day, it was like God was just saying, I'm in charge. I choose who I bring down. I choose who I raise up. At the end of the day, we can do everything right on the outside. We can have the best strategies. We can have the coolest speakers. We can have the best band, which we got a good one, y'all. Um, but at the end of the day, it is God who raises up. It is God who brings down. And so we never, you never grow out of a desperate dependence on God. And actually, if you a sign that you are growing closer to Christ is that you are more dependent on him. You look at the Apostle Paul, he said, yet not I, but the grace of God that was in me. So the more closer you grow to Christ, the more desperately dependent you are on him. And the way to show that is prayer. Prayer is the way that you show God that you want his help. A prayerless life is a prideful life because you're basically saying, God, I got this on my own. I don't need your intervention. I got this. So the next thing I see that God blesses is God blesses wholehearted devotion. God blesses wholehearted devotion. I was afraid I was going to start crying, so I brought a nap napkin. There's a haunting verse that I came across. Um, it's in 2 Chronicles 25.2. This is the last thing I want to be true of me as a leader. Amaziah did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, yet not with the whole heart. You can read his story another time, but just don't let that be true of you. Don't let that, I, I'm determined to not let this, this be true of me. This is interesting because it's saying he did what was right in the sight of the Lord. So he did the right things on the outside, but his heart wasn't all there. His heart wasn't fully in it. And I think as long, a lot of times as followers of Christ, we can go through the motions and we can, we can kind of do the right things and check the right boxes. But the question is, is our heart really in it? Is it are you serving the Lord with a whole heart? You can fool most people all the time. You can fool some people most of the time. And you can fool God none of the time. <laughs> so if your heart is not fully committed to Christ, then God sees right through that. Jeremiah 17, 10 says, But I, the Lord, search all hearts and examine secret motives. I give all people their due rewards according to what their actions deserve. Jeremiah 17, 10. God sees, he can pierce very into your motives that you don't even know. He knows you better than you know you. And so for me, this looks like repenting on a regular basis. <laughs> Honestly, I just have to tell you, I, as, as long as I've been trying to walk with Christ, as hard as I've been trying to walk with Christ, for, as long, for 15 or so years, every single day, I mess up. Every single day, I have a thought that doesn't honor God. And I have to say, Lord, I'm sorry for that thought. Please cleanse me. Help me move forward in this in faith. Every single day, I 
catch myself getting lazy or I catch myself getting impatient or I catch myself struggling with temptation to be prideful about things that I have no business being proud about. And when you sin, and so if you think that's not your story, maybe I need to take some notes from you, but I know, because I know me, and I know myself when I was your age, is I was a sinner, and we all are sinners. But the good news is God wants to cleanse us. And so your, your life is like a pipe, and sin clogs that up, okay? And confession, cleansing, actually takes that out, takes the gunk out, and causes the Holy Spirit to flow through your life in a deeper and more impactful way. And so God can still use you if you're struggling with sin. He can still do things through you, but the best life in the world is a life wholly committed to Christ. It's a life that is clean and enabled for Christ to flow through you. Because sin can hinder God's ability to answer prayer in your life. Psalm 66, 18, it says, if I had cherished sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. So I have a question for you. Is there an area of your life where you're unwilling to surrender to Christ? This is between you and God, but I want to ask you right now, is there an area of your life that you've been struggling to surrender over to Christ? Don't play games with God. God knows your heart. And you can allow him to cleanse those parts. Just let him take it. He wants to take your sin. It's not, a, it's not about you trying to clean up your, out, your act. It's about allowing God's spirit to flow into your life and to cleanse that life. Okay, I was reading again in the Old Testament. Y'all ready for another one? Okay, got it. Joshua 7. I was reading about um, Jericho. Anyone heard of Jericho? Okay, anyone seen the VeggieTales version where they're throwing slushies, okay? Slushies, the peas and stuff like that. If you haven't, check it out. It's awesome. But it's an amazing story, and I, if you want to read it, and if you haven't read it, read Joshua 5 and 6. It is one of the most amazing stories of God's hand to deliver his people and God's ability to do, nothing, do amazing things through basically nothing. <laughs> they just marched around and blew trumpets and God, like, knocked the walls down. But what happens, their winning streak actually didn't, their promised land campaign winning streak did not last long. In the very next chapter, there's this guy named Achan who saw this gold. God told the, the Israelites when they were taking over, um, taking over Jericho that not to take any of the gold statues or any of the gold or anything. Don't take anything and so he saw these gold things, and he hid them under his tent. And he thought no one would know. And so right after Joshua sent, they thought, oh, this is a small town we're going to go attack. And he sent about 3,000 3, men. And like, this will be so easy. We far outnumber them. We're just going to overtake this town. And turns out they just got their butts whooped. <laughs> and 65 people died. They started, they had to retreat back. And Joshua said, what just happened? Like literally, just a few days ago, Jericho fell, right? But God did the most amazing miracle I've ever seen in my life. And now we can't even defeat this tiny little town. So he rips his, he rips his robes and he's, he's laying before the Lord and he's saying, what has happened? What is wrong with the situation? And God lets him know there's sin in the camp. There is sin in the camp. And we're going to pick up in Joshua 7, 10 through 13. It says, the Lord said to Joshua, stand up. What are you doing down on your face? Israel has sinned. They have violated my covenant, which I commanded them to keep. They have taken some of the devoted things they have stolen. They have lied. They have put them with their own possessions. That is why the Israelites cannot stand against their enemies. They turn their backs and run because they have not been made liable to destruction. I will not be with, with you anymore unless you destroy whatever among you is devoted to destruction. Go consecrate the people. Tell them, consecrate yourselves in preparation for tomorrow. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. They are devoted things among you, Israel, 
You cannot stand against your enemies until you remove them. Joshua 7, 10 through 13. Basically, God is mad. And God, God basically exposes Achan and his whole family, and he kills them. And then the very next, right after that, they defeated that, that village like with ease. And God, after that, God's blessing was back on the nation of Israel. And so you're not a nation. This is the entire nation. Could be millions of people. I don't know exactly how many. But lots of people. And one person had a sin in their life. So, and they, they, had a one sin, they had a sin that was hidden. And God was making a point. God uses what he did in the Old Testament to make a point for us today. Is that even a little sin that you're trying to hide can do destruction in your life, to your soul. So don't let a little sin hold you back from the victorious life that God wants in your life. Psalm 139, 23 and 24, it says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Psalm 139, 23 and 24. This is something you can pray. This is, I often pray something like this. God, show me where I need to confess my sin to you. Show me where I, I have fallen short. And then he does. I think of something and I just confess it and I renounce it. And actually, it's kind of crazy, but there's joy in repentance. Because you're getting your soul cleansed and your soul forgiven. And you're, you're getting your, your life made right with God. And it's something that, that God wants to do. It's, it's a revival that God wants to bring into your life, a deeper relationship with him. Proverbs 28, 13, whoever conceals our sin does not prosper, but the one who confesses and renounces them finds mercy. So sometimes God puts it on my heart as I'm praying, uh, a relationship I need to clear up or something that I need to do to confess to another person. And those are the hardest ones sometimes. But those, I just encourage you, do that right away. Don't let any sin fester and hide because sin hates, sin is darkness and it loves the darkness and it hates the light. You bring your dirty, dark sin into the light and God will clean it up. And so confess it, renounce it, be accountable to other people. That's been so helpful to me is having other people that I can confess my sins to, not just to God, but confessing and being open and honest with some other people, and they can pray for me. James 5, it says, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. So, and then the good news is, because of what Jesus did on the cross, no sin is too bad. No sin is too small to confess, but no sin is too big that it cannot be forgiven. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. You don't have to put yourself in spiritual timeout. You don't have to throw a pity party. You don't have to just act like God's mad at you. God wants to forgive you and restore you. The moment you sin, confess it and you're gonna restore it and you can, you can move right forward in faith with God. So I actually, this is a process I actually have to take on a regular basis. There may be a couple days where I get lazy spiritually and I start just like not being the man that God's called me to be. And so I need to spend maybe 30 minutes and I just really need to spend time with God. I sometimes I'll write out the sins that God puts on my heart and I just need to confess and renew my commitment to Christ. And I just need to restore that relationship. And, and what I call that is a deep cleaning, okay? A spring cleaning, okay? It's sometimes I just need a, a deep cleansing of my heart and my soul. And so sometimes you need to spend more time alone with God, letting him speak into your life, letting him speak about some of the areas that you've been holding on to for a while. And so I'd somehow encourage you to try, maybe even this week. Let's get 30 minutes, get an hour, and just ask God to show you what areas of your life, what habits in your life need to be cleansed and need to be restored and renewed? And then, but it's not about remembering every single sin legalistically. It's about your general bent and your general attitude towards God. So God knows your heart. He knows your attitude towards him. So I've actually fallen into the other ditch 
where I felt like if I didn't remember every single sin I ever committed, then God was going to be mad at me. And that's not, that's not the way God, God works. God loves us. We could never remember, we could never, um, remember all the sins we've ever, ever committed because that's how holy God is. So a great prayer I, that's helped me is Psalm 19, 12 to 13. It says, how can I know all the sins lurking in my heart? Cleanse me from these hidden faults. Keep your servant from deliberate sins. Don't let them control me. Then I will be free of guilt and innocent of great sin. So God can come in and he can cleanse you completely. And it's not about perfection, it's about direction. It's about the attitude of your heart. And so I just wanna challenge you to live a life that is fully committed to God. Because then you can invite God's spirit to fill you and to enable you to live the life that he's called you to live. And he will, he will use you. It's a promise. Uh, one of the, my favorite passages, I memorized it during a really hard time in my life um, when I was struggling with a lot of sin and a, a lot of things I was, I was just struggling with. It's Psalm 51. And David, um, the man after God's own heart, had just killed a man and committed adultery with his wife. And this is the prayer he prays after he committed two of the biggies, two of the big sins. And he was just struggling to, he started to realize what he had done. And this is what he prayed. He said, have mercy on me, O God, because of your unfailing love. Because of your great compassion, blot out the stain of my sins. Wash me clean from my guilt. Purify me from my sin. For I recognize my shameful deeds. It haunts me day and night. Against you and you alone have I sinned. I've done what is evil in your sight. You will be proved right in what you say, and your judgment against me is just. For I was born a sinner, yes, from the moment my mother conceived me. But you desire honesty from the womb, teaching me, teaching me wisdom even there. Purify me from my sins, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Oh, give me back my joy again. You have broken me. Now let me rejoice. Don't keep looking at my sins. Remove the sin of my guilt. Create in me a clean heart, O oh God, and renew a right spirit within me. Don't banish me from your presence and don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me again the joy of your salvation and make me willing to obey you. Then I will teach your ways to rebels and they will return to you. Forgive me for shedding blood, O oh God, who saves. Then I will joyfully sing of your forgiveness. Unseal my lips, O oh Lord, that I may praise you. You do not desire a sacrifice or I would offer one. You do not want a burnt offering. The sacrifice you want is a broken spirit, a broken and repentant heart you will not despise, O God. Look with favor on Zion and help her. Rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will be pleased with sacrifices offered in the right spirit, with burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will again be sacrificed on your altar. Psalm 51. I'd memorized that, that psalm as I was going through that time and just using that as a prayer when I didn't know what else to pray. I felt trapped. I felt alone. I felt like no one really understood what I was going through. And I used this psalm as a prayer just to pray back to God. And, and God would meet me right there and he would help me move forward. And I, I've, over the years, I've, I've kept it more or less um, memorized and uh, more or less than more, but um, this, this phrase has stuck out me for a long time. The verse 17, it says, the sacrifice you desire is a broken spirit. You will not reject a broken and repentant heart, O God. So if your heart is right, if your heart is repentant, God can't resist it. God will reach down and restore you. No matter where you've done, been and no matter what you've done. And then here's another one I love. I pray this one often. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and make me willing to obey you. <laughs> I love that. It's like, I don't even want to obey you, but I want to want to obey you. <laughs> and it's, it's like, ask God to do that. It's something God wants to do. And then when you're cleansed, when you're right with God, that's the life that God will use. And if you get usable, God's gonna wear you out. 2 Timothy 2, 20 through 21. In a lodge house, there are articles not only of gold and silver, also of wood and clay. Some are for special purpose and some are for common use. 
Those who cleanse themselves from the latter will be instruments for special purposes, made holy, useful to the master, and prepared to do any good work. 2 Timothy 2, 20-21. When you see people being used by God, when you see people that are, seem like they just have something about them that God just uses them and blesses them, this is what's happening is they've learned this secret of letting God cleanse their life, letting God restore their life on a regular basis, a daily basis. And they're walking in integrity and wholehearted devotion to Christ. And those are the people that God wants to use. Those are the people that God has set apart. I'm going to use these people. But the cool thing is, God will use anybody. <laughs> God will use, you don't have to be gifted, you just have to be wholehearted. God will use you no matter how gifted you feel, no matter how much of a talker you are, whatever. God will use anybody. God is no respecter of persons, okay? He, he will use. He's looking. It says this in 2 Chronicles 69. For the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. 2 Chronicles 16.9. So God is looking. God is longing for people that are fully committed to him. That's what he's looking for. And that's what he's going to pour out his spirit on. And that's the people that he's going to use in amazing ways for his kingdom. The last thing as I see is God blesses courageous action. God blesses courageous action. I've been reading the Old Testament, right? Okay, and so Moses is about to die. And the, the Israelites are about to go into the promised land. And he's about to make the handoff to Joshua. And over and over again, when, when Moses makes, is talking about the handoff to Joshua, it's, like, it's kind of like a broken record if you read it in different places in Scripture. Moses is saying basically two things. Be careful to obey God fully and be strong and courageous. Be careful to obey God fully and be strong and courageous. And it's like, just read the Bible and especially during that section, and you'll just notice it. It's like, I don't even know how many times, but I just was like, okay, I get it. Obey God fully and be strong and courageous. Joshua 1, 8, 9. Keep this book of the law always on your lips. Meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you'll be prosperous and successful. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. Joshua 1, 8, and 9. And this is interesting because this is what God was emphasizing through Moses to Joshua. Because Moses experienced the fruit of fear. Moses understood that he was right, they were right at the edge of the promised land. And the Israelites gave in to fear. They sent out 10 spies into the land. They were at the promised land. They sent 10 spies out and they went out and they saw there was like these grapes that were like this big. They saw all kinds of amazing things. The land was flowing with milk and honey. I don't even know what that means, but it was. And, but then they saw these giants in the land. They saw these really big guys and they were, they were afraid. And they came back and eight of them said, oh, guys, the land is good. But there's these giants, so I think we should, we should just settle right here. We should just hang out right here. Um, let's pick it up in Numbers 13, 26 to 33. They came back to Moses and Aaron and the whole Israelite community at Kadesh in the desert of Paran. There they reported to them and to the whole assembly and showed them the fruit of the land. So they had the big old grapes right there. They're like, look, that's nice. They gave Moses this account. We went into the land to which you sent us, and it does flow with milk and honey. What does that mean? Okay, here's the fruit. But the people who live there are powerful, and the cities are fortified and very large. We even saw the descendants of Anak. Ooh. The Amalekites lived in the Negev, the Hittites, the Jebusites, and the Amorites lived in the hill country, and the Canaanites lived near the sea along the Jordan. Then Caleb silenced them, and he said, he said to the people before Moses and said, we should go up and take possession of the land, for we can certainly do it. But the men who had gone up with him said, 
We cannot attack these people. They are stronger than we are. And they spread, they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land that they had explored. They said, the land we explored devours those living in it. All the people we saw there of great, are of great size. We saw the Nephilim there. The descendants of Anak came, come from the Nephilim. We seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and we looked the same to them. Numbers 13, 26 to 33. That is so lame. <laughs> we, look, the, we, we looked like grasshoppers to them, and so did we to them. Like, how did they know what those people were thinking? They did, probably didn't even see him. They were too busy eating grapes or something. They weren't looking at him. But Caleb said, certainly we can do it. And then I noticed in this passage, it said, they spread a bad report. So bad news and fear spreads way faster than faith. Bad news and fear spreads way faster than faith. Caleb had a strong cry. We can certainly do it. But the other eight, they had a negative report. They had a bad report. And as a result, God was furious. Because all the Israelites went with those eight. They were shaken and cowering. And fear dishonors God. It actually infuriates him. Why? Why? Because it calls God a liar. It says what God has called me to do actually won't work. Numbers 23, 19. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? So God always keeps his promises. And when you give in to fear, you are calling God a liar. I'm not saying struggle with fear. We all are tempted to fear. But when you give in to fear and you let it stop you from doing what God is calling you to do, that is something that dishonors God. And what God actually did was he caused the Israelites to go live, wander back, take another trip around Mount Sinai, another lap. <laughs> they took another lap around Mount Sinai, and they were, there for, they were there for 40 years until that entire generation died out. So the, only the kids got to go in. The kids and Caleb and Joshua were the, were the people. They were the only two people that were allowed to go into the promised land. In Numbers 14, 24, it says, But because my servant Caleb has a different spirit and follows me wholeheartedly, I will bring him into the land he went to, and his descendants will inherit it. Numbers 14, 24. Caleb has a different spirit and follows me wholeheartedly. There's that, that phrase again. This is, I'll, I'll let Caleb in, I'll let Joshua in, but everyone else, your kids can go in, but not you, because you gave in to fear. There's so much more to following God than just not sinning. There's so much more to obeying God than just not sinning. It's taking obedient steps of courage, of faith in action. So that's what I'm going to challenge you this week is ask God, what is your step of faith? What is God calling you to do? What is your next step? And I love how when Caleb, before he acquires the land, Fast forward a little bit. They're, they're divvying out the land. Caleb, this is actually 40 years later, he says this. This is so good. He says, now then, just as the Lord promised, he has kept me alive for 45 years since the time he said this to Moses, while Israel moved about in the wilderness. So here I am today, 85 years old. I'm still as strong today as the day Moses sent me out. I'm just as vigorous to go out to battle now as I was then. Now give me this hill country that the Lord promised me that day. You yourselves heard that the Anakites were there and their cities were large and fortified, but the Lord helped me. The, but the Lord helping me, I will drive them out just as he said. Joshua 14, 10 through 12. This is an attitude that I want to have. When I'm old and wrinkly, I hope that my passion for God doesn't wane one bit. I hope that my desire to be used by God never slows down at all. I, I, will, I looked up to guys like we're bringing in. They're not as old. We have Bevan and Steve. They're about 60. But I also look up to my mentor, Max Barnett, who's about 80 years old. And he would, like, rock your socks off. I got to bring him in sometime. But, man, you just feel like you're gripping <laughs> your seat when you're, it's on a ride when he's speaking. 
because just the passion for God oozes from him. So this is the kind of life you want to live. Faith will fuel your life, and God will bless it, and fear will constrict it. I want to just challenge you to lay your lives before God. Think about what is my next step? And this whole week, I want you to ask God, start asking God, what is my next step? What is God calling me to do? And honestly, I think God may be calling some of you to lay down your dreams. He may be calling you to lay down some of those things that you've been holding on to in your life and to take a courageous step of faith. G.K. Chesterton said, if God calls you to be a missionary, don't stoop to be a king. If God calls you to be a missionary, don't stoop to be a king. There's nothing more important than being a part of the work that God is doing. And some of us, we have a good career. We have a, a good call, you know, thing that we think, this is my path and this is my safe bubble. Watch out. God might redirect you. Francis Xavier, he said, tell the students to give up their small ambitions and come eastward to preach the gospel of Christ. Let me tell you something. Your bucket list is overrated. I have a bucket list. I want to go to New Zealand. <laughs> I want to see where the Lord of the Rings was filmed and all that. But it's overrated because the eternal life with God, the new heavens and the new earth is going to make New Zealand look like a mud pie in the slum. It's going gonna, it's gonna to look like nothing. It's going to look like, you know, I was going to say Bakersfield. <laughs> I'm sorry, anyone from there. <laughs> sorry. Oh, man. Oh, it just killed the mood. But faith is always risky. Faith, by definition, is scary and risky. And so following God means that you do things that you don't know how it's going to work out. You don't know exactly how it's going to play out. And this is before I moved to Chico. Um, I was meeting with a guy, and he was like, I don't know about support raising. I don't know about the way we raise funds. You guys are planning to raise funds. And I heard a lot, about a lot of people mowing lawns because they couldn't bring in money for it. And it has been hard raising support. But I remember just thinking, well, dude, I can mow lawns. Look, I got legs. And, like, even if this doesn't work out, I can always mow lawns, <laughs> okay? And there's a story that God used when he called me out to Chico was 1 Samuel 14, 6. I encourage you, encourage you to read it on your own. I'm just going to quote it. Um, it's Jonathan said to his young armor bearer, come, let's go to the outpost of those uncircumcised fellows. <laughs> Perhaps the Lord will act on our behalf. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. And Jonathan and his armor bearer are down here, and actually Saul and the army are being disobedient. And the enemy is up in the garrison up here. And in the, in the context, they just went up, two guys, and they killed about 20 men, just those two guys. And then God sent an earthquake. And then there was mass confusion. At the end of the day, the Israelites won the battle. And honestly, this is what I felt like when God was speaking to me to move out to Chico. I was scared to death. I was afraid. But God used this, this phrase, this word, perhaps. It was actually encouraging in kind of an unencouraging way. Because <laughs> it was like, I want you to do this, and I want you to step out of faith, and I want you to live, leave the results up to me. But God has done a great work. You guys are here. <laughs> we have a ministry, and God has brought people around. God has provided financially. I've gotten two cars given to me. I've gotten all sorts of things that are, can only be explained by God. But I want you to also know that it was that first courageous decision, but it was also like almost this entire process of leading this ministry and starting this ministry has been one fearful yet courageous step at a time. I remember my first large group meeting I ever spoke at for Challenge. It was our very first large group meeting. I remember I was literally like throwing up in the bathroom and I was just afraid to death. I don't know. I don't know what was going on, but I was afraid to death. And my, t my twin brother texted me this verse. It's on the screens. Proverbs 21, 31. The horse is made ready for the day of battle, but victory rests with the Lord. So follow, living by faith. And then God actually blessed that message 
And it was a really good message and a really good night. And it, it kicked off our ministry that year. And, but every step of the way, there's another step of faith. And there's always fear that you're battling through as you're, as you're walking. If you're not struggling with fear, if you're not tempted to fear, you're not walking by faith. If you're not tempted to fear, if you're not getting out of your comfort zone, then you may not be walking by faith. So I want to encourage you this week, decide right now, whatever God says to you, God may speak to you some crazy things. God may challenge you to, to really maybe start a new ministry or maybe to go in and become a doctor and then go overseas and do medical missions for the rest of your life. He may call you to start a, a, a church in an unreached people group overseas. He may call you to be a stay-at-home mom and to make disciples and to serve in the local church and to be a disciple maker for the rest of your life. But whatever God calls you to do, I want to challenge you to make your decision yes, up front. Decide right now, whatever God calls you to do. And he may not give you a clear direction this week, so don't, don't feel like you missed out if he didn't. But he may. He may give you some direction. Ed Stetzer said this. He said, put your yes on the table and let God put it on the map. Put your yes on the table and let God put it on the map. Ask God to make you willing to obey him, whatever he calls you to do. And it's going to be messy. It's going to be hard. It's going to be a struggle. It's going to be steps of faith every step of the way. But God is more than faithful, and God wants to bless you. And most of all, through the entire process of your life, he wants you to learn how to relate to him and how to draw closer to him. And he lets you go through these things so that you can grow closer and closer to him. So I want to ask the band to come on up. And I want to challenge you. We're going to spend the first part of this song just praying, just asking God what it is you need to confess to him, what next steps that you need to take, what is God calling you to do? Does that make sense? So you jot some things down in your journal if you need to. Is there a sin that you need to confess? Is there some, a step of faith that God's, you know God's calling you to make? Why not just decide at the beginning of the week <laughs> to make that decision and to surrender that to Christ? So let me pray with us, and then we'll jump into that time of prayer. And then, David, you can just make the call. Say you stand up and join us in singing whenever you feel led to do that. Father, thank you so much for your grace. Thank you that you meet us right where we are. I pray that each person in here would do business with you, that we wouldn't let any sin, any, anything hold us back from fully following you, from being cleansed of our sin, from being pure in our hearts. And God, give us the faith, give us courage to take the steps you're calling us to take. Don't let anything stop us from that. Make us willing to obey you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.